Well, good morning. Thanks for braving the rain, which is actually appropriate given our discussion of baptism today. We have been talking in theological equipping about dispensational versus covenantal theology, in particular the different ways in which these two uh, uh, systems of thought view the various uh, covenants that we see throughout Scripture, the, uh, the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenant. And in particular, we've been looking at this uh, through the lens of continuity versus discontinuity between the covenants. In what ways are the covenants similar versus in what ways are they dissimilar? And, uh, and so whether you are dispensational or covenantal or you have no idea what those words mean, uh, everyone sees certain elements of continuity or certain elements of discontinuity between the various covenants, certain ways in which some of the covenants are similar and ways in which some of them are uh, dissimilar. With each other. In general, what we said is that uh, dispensational theology uh, stresses the discontinuity between the covenants. You can even see that kind of prefix there of dis. Dispensational and discontinuity is a way that you can uh, remember that. So dispensationals uh, stress discontinuity between the covenants, whereas covenantal theology stresses the continuity between the covenants. You see the first two letters there of CO. So covenantal continuity, dispensational discontinuity. And in general, although I went to kind of one of the bastions of dispensational thought, uh, one of their seminaries in uh, DTS, in general, I tend to agree with more of the covenantal view of, uh, of theology. But there's one aspect in a covenantal way of thinking in which I disagree. And that, in particular, that is an aspect of continuity in which I actually find, as I'm reading the Scriptures, to there, for there to be a, a much more profound amount of discontinuity. And that's on the topic of paedo-baptism. That's what we're going to talk about today. Paedo-baptism versus credo-baptism. And so let me define both of those terms and not assume that you know exactly what we're talking about. And so when I talk about paedo-baptism, that's from two Greek words, paidon, which means like an infant or a a small child. Uh, It's the same root word from which we get the word pediatrician. And uh, and so a paidon is a child, and the baptism baptizo, which means to uh, baptize. It actually means to immerse, but we'll get into that in a little bit uh, later. So, paedo-baptism, which is the practice of baptizing infants. Now, you contrast that with credo-baptism, which is uh, baptizing those who profess or believe something. That's what a creed is. A creed isn't just a character on the office. Uh, A creed is a statement of belief. And so, credo-baptists baptize those who profess belief. And so, contrary to a rumor that I once heard, I did not baptize my infant daughter. I am most decidedly not a paedo-baptist. I believe the Bible clearly teaches credo-baptism. But I want to talk a little bit about paedo-baptism. And so let me show what the logic of the paedo-baptist position is. And so here is what you will hear if you're talking to someone who uh, uh, believes in paedo-baptism. This is uh, kind of the argument, the logic, the the reason that they will uh, teach this particular practice of baptizing uh, infants. And so their view is infants were circumcised in the Old Covenant. Absolutely would agree with that. They would say baptism is the sign 
of the new covenant as circumcision was the sign of the old covenant. I would uh, believe that. They would say there is essential continuity between the old and new covenants. And here's where you see a little bit of where we might push back and say, yes, there's elements of continuity, but also discontinuity. So infants were circumcised in the old covenant. Baptism is the sign of the new covenant as circumcision was the sign of the old covenant. Third point, there is essential continuity between the old and new covenants. And the fourth point, as a consequence, therefore, we should baptize infants in the new covenant and in the new covenant uh, community. And so the fact that there is discontinuity to some degree is not in debate. Even paedo-baptists will recognize this. For example, they will say circumcision has changed to baptism. We no longer circumcise our infants, we baptize our infants. That's an aspect of discontinuity. They would also agree that no longer is the sign only for boys. Circumcision was you take your eight-day-old son and you would go out and you would circumcise him. And they would agree that's no longer something that you only do for boys. But uh, now the new covenant sign of baptism is to be applied to boys and girls. So even paedo-baptists would say that there is some degree of discontinuity. So the question is, what is that degree of continuity? And I would think... I would think that the discontinuity that we see between the covenants and between circumcision and baptism are such as to require a credo-baptist reading of the text and to prohibit paedo-baptism. So that's my contention this morning that I hope to set out uh, to, to prove. And so now before we begin, I just want to make this abundantly clear. Most of my theological heroes have been paedo-baptists. In fact, most Christians throughout history have been paedo-baptists. Starting around 300 AD, it became the standard practice. It continued that way until the Reformation. And even then, paedo-baptism was the major position of the church, and the Reformers were united in their opposition to a group called the Anabaptists, which means rebaptizers. Those who were sprinkled as an infant but came to the conclusion that, uh, that uh, paedo-baptism was not correct, and so they were called the rebaptizers because then they got baptized as adults. So I'm well aware of the weight of godly men opposing me on this subject. Guys like Augustine, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, John Owen, modern guys like R.C. Sproul and J.I. Packer and Tim Keller, now, this group wouldn't light up any church league basketball attorneys, but they are certainly luminaries when it comes to theology. But then again, there are no perfect theologians. Zach and I agree on most things when it comes to theology, but there are even areas where we disagree, which proves that Zach is sometimes wrong when it comes to uh, his beliefs, at least some of the time. But I think this is an issue that is sufficiently clear in Scripture. So even as I critique uh, some of these people that are my heroes, I recognize uh, the weight and the influence behind them. And so I do so as a, uh, a brother that is deeply grateful for their contributions to uh, Christian uh, theology and history. And, and not only that, not only are most of our heroes Paedo-Baptist, but nearly every other branch of Christianity practices paedo-baptism. In fact, that's why Baptists, as we are a Baptist church, that's why Baptists are called Baptists, is because of our distinct views on baptism. 
the Christian history is basically divided into these uh, three different uh, epochs or, uh, or periods, and there's three kind of branches, main branches of traditional Christianity. You have Roman Catholicism, uh, then that broke uh, in, uh, in like the 12th century and, uh, and became Roman Catholicism, and then you also had Eastern Orthodoxy, and then in the Reformation, you added to that a third branch of Christianity, that is Protestantism. And, uh, and so in Roman Catholicism and in Eastern Orthodoxy, you see paedobaptism. Even within Protestantism, the overwhelming majority of denominations practice paedobaptism. And so Lutherans and Methodists and Presbyterians and Anglicans and Episcopalians all practice uh, baptism. Now that said, although all of these traditions practice paedobaptism, the reason that they do so is going to be very diverse, very distinct. The outward act is the same. They're still uh, all baptizing infants, but the reason, the motivation, the rationales for doing so are really diverse. In particular, you have two camps, two different streams of thought within paedobaptism. You have the view that baptism is regenerative. That baptism itself, whenever you baptize, whenever you, you dip or you sprinkle or you effuse, that's to pour over, uh, whenever you do this, whenever you baptize an infant in this way, that, that is what regenerates them, what gives them new birth, what washes away the stain of original sin or, and awakens to new life. That's uh, traditionally what uh, Catholics and Lutherans uh, have believed. That's what they have uh, traditionally taught about this practice. So that's one view. The second view is that uh, baptism is unregenerative. This is where Presbyterians and the Reformed denomination uh, land. We'll talk a little bit about that here in a moment. Somewhere in between these two streams, that baptism is regenerative or that baptism is unregenerative, uh, are the much less clear positions of Methodists, of Anglicans, which is uh, the Church of England, and the Episcopalians, which is kind of the American branch of the Anglican Church, has a different name. It's not called Anglican uh, because Anglican theology swears allegiance to the queen. And even though we might fawn over the royal wedding this past weekend, it really isn't in vogue in America to swear allegiance to the royal family. If you don't know why that is, go watch The Patriot, which is basically the American version of Braveheart or something. So anyway, depending on the individual church in these traditions, in Methodist uh, church, in an Anglican church, in the Episcopalian uh, church, you might find varying forms of pedo. Some might lean toward it being more regenerative. Some might be uh, the view that it is unregenerative. But in general, those are the different camps within paedobaptism. So all of these denominations, Roman Catholic Church, the uh, Eastern Orthodox Church and all of its different uh, Russian Orthodox and uh, Greek Orthodox and all of these sorts of things, all of these practice infant baptism, but they mean something totally different by it. And so for time's sake, we're going to talk specifically about Presbyterian and Reformed nuances since they otherwise are much more closely aligned with us theologically. These are, this is typically what's called covenantal theology, and I would hold to covenantal theology in most areas. I would call myself reformed in regards to my soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, my anthropology, the doctrine of man, my hamartiology, the doctrine of sin. But when it comes to this issue, in particular ecclesiology, the nature of the church and its sacraments or ordinances, uh, then I would not agree with my uh, reformed 
uh, brothers. And so, uh, for the sake of time, we're just going to really look at the uh, Presbyterian and Reformed nuances of the conversation. Everything we, we say, though, would apply uh, to uh, these other branches, these other streams, these other traditions or denominations uh, or whatever it might be that practice paedobaptism. We would just say other things in addition to this uh, about them. And so if you're looking at a Presbyterian or Reformed view, this is what they say. They say, that baptism is a sign and seal of God's promise to believers and their children. That's the distinctive. That it's a sign and seal of God's promise to believers and their children, and that believers should therefore baptize their infants even before they believe in hopes and expectation that they will believe. Now, this is really important for you to recognize. That they do not believe that all children of believers are saved or that they will necessarily be saved, or that they are regenerate currently, or that baptism regenerates them. That's not what the Reformed Church, that's not what the Presbyterian Church uh, believes. They don't believe any of those things, but they do believe that the children of believers are members of the covenant community in some sense and should therefore receive the sign of the covenant. Now, by the way, this fact that Presbyterian and Reformed theology practices the same uh, form, outward form of paedobaptism, but have a totally different inner uh, theological meaning behind the practice is going to be really, really important. Sometimes you might, if you're talking to someone who's Presbyterian or Reformed, you're talking to them about paedobaptism, and you're saying, man, I love everything about your church except for this particular thing. They will say something about, uh, well, uh, our tradition has so much more to offer in terms of it being much more historical, that credo-baptism is new. It doesn't have the tradition or the history of paedobaptism. Let's talk about that for a second. The first thing to recognize is it's, it's assuming right off the bat what it's arguing. It's assuming what it's already arguing, which is a fallacy. It's assuming that credo-baptism is not the biblical position. Whatever is the biblical position is the oldest position by virtue of the fact that it's the position that is at the beginning of the church. As the church is birthed in the book of Acts, as the church spreads throughout uh, the epistles, that is, whatever is the position that was practiced there is the oldest position. Whether it fell out of use or not is not the question. And so that's the first thing to recognize is that they're making a large assumption. We don't really have explicit historical mention of infant baptism until sometime around 200 AD, a guy named Tertullian. And even then, that first mention was actually a bit of a critique of it. He was a little wary of it. So we know... Uh, that at least by 200 A.D., some churches were practicing uh, infant baptism, but by and large, it was not the established position of the church because you have this uh, church father, Tertullian, who is criticizing it. So that's the first thing, is that it's an assumption that this is not the oldest position. But second, let's grant for a second that paedobaptism has a longer history, that it's older well, the problem uh, with using this as a defense for the Reformed or the Presbyterian view of paedobaptism is that that particular form doesn't develop until the Reformation. Before the Reformation, the only types of uh, paedobaptism that you had are actually the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox view. 
Roman Catholic view, you have this idea that baptism uh, is regenerative, that it washes away the stain of Adamic or original sin. And so the, uh, the Presbyterian or Reformed view of paedobaptism uh, is actually, does it, we actually don't see it develop historically until the time of the Reformation which is around the same time that you have the Anabaptists and the Rebaptizers. And so really, if you think about it, the question is not uh, paedobaptism versus credobaptism. It's this particular view of paedobaptism. And, uh, and that really historically is no older than uh, credobaptism. So that's the, uh, that's the second thing uh, that I would want to say about that. So all of this is just to say that this isn't necessarily a question that divides believers from unbelievers. This isn't necessarily a question that divides believers from unbelievers. It's not something like the Trinity. It's not something like the hypostatic union or whether Jesus actually rose from the dead or something like that. This is a uh, interfraternal debate. This is a debate between brothers and sisters, legitimate people who love Jesus, who love uh, the scriptures, who believe the scriptures, who believe in the inerrancy of scriptures, uh, might fall in different places on this issue. That said, this is a really important thing for us to wrestle through. And the most illogical position uh, that you can take is that saying that both are right or that pr- churches should practice both. That doesn't make sense at all, as we will see here in a little bit. That would be like saying that it's right and also saying that it's not right to baptize unregenerate people. And that it's both right and also not right to allow unregenerate people into the church. As we'll see, the question isn't really about infants versus adults. The question is really believers versus unbelievers. The regenerate versus the unregenerate. Those who have been born again versus those who have not been born again. That's the question. The question is not one of age. The question is one of status. That's why this is important. And that's why you can't do both. Because someone can't be both regenerate and unregenerate. So with all that said, here's my critique of the Pado-Baptist argument. It has really two parts that will flesh out. The first one has to do with the symbol, the nature of the symbol and the nature of the covenant. Here's my contention, that the nature of the promises of the new covenant are different from the Mosaic covenant. In other words, what's signified by the sign has changed. We've talked about signs before as we've walked through uh, these various covenants of Scripture that the sign of the Noahic covenant was a rainbow, that the sign of the Abrahamic covenant is circumcision, that the sign of the Mosaic covenant is the Sabbath, that so likewise the sign of the new covenant is baptism. But here's the big difference as it relates to the ring. Think, uh, or, or as it relates to baptism, think of a ring as being a sign of the covenant of marriage. Think of a ring as being a sign of the covenant of marriage. Pedo-baptism is like an engagement ring. There's something signified there, but we all know people who have backed out, people who have changed their minds, whereas credo-baptism is like a wedding ring. The vows, the covenants have been made. The marriage has been consummated. Credo-baptism says, I have been married to my Lord. Pedo-baptism says, I might be married to my Lord. That's the first thing, that the nature of the covenant itself and the nature of the covenantal promises suggest that the sign of the covenant should be applied differently. The second thing that we want to flesh out here in a moment is that 
the nature of the covenant community has fundamentally changed from the Mosaic to the new covenant communities. The nature of the covenant community has fundamentally changed from the Mosaic covenant in the nation of Israel to the new covenant in the church. And both of these we'll see as we look at Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Both of these distinctions we can see, both of these aspects of continuity versus discontinuity we see here in this passage, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, which says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. Notice that. He just said, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. Discontinuity that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Here's my contention. If you just understand the logic of this text, it blows a hole in the Pado-Baptist argument. It completely washes away that argument. Notice that it's called a new covenant. He says, I'm going to make a new covenant. And then in verse 32, it explicitly says that in some sense, this new covenant will not be like the old covenant, will not be like the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that was made in the desert whenever God brought his people out of Egypt. In other words, there is discontinuity. What is that discontinuity? Well, we might offer all kinds of guesses. It's different in this way. It's different in that way. This is a distinction. That's a distinction. We might offer all kinds of guesses or speculation about the discontinuity, but we don't have to do that because the text itself answers that question in verses 33 through 34. What's so unique about the new covenant? What's so new about the new covenant? It says right here that I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother. They shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. So let's talk a little bit about that through these two lenses of symbol and community, these two aspects of discontinuity that we see highlighted here in this passage. First, we'll talk about the symbol, that the nature of the promises of the new covenant are different from the Mosaic covenant. In other words, what is signified by the sign has changed. The nature of the promises that the sign is intended to symbolize has changed. So what did circumcision signify? Well, there were a number of things. One of the most important things is it was a type. We've talked about typology before. This is the, the idea that certain things in the Old Testament were shadows pointing to the greater fulfillment, the substance that we see in the New Testament in Christ. And so it was a type. The body was circumcised as a sign that the heart should ultimately be circumcised. Deuteronomy 10, 16, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. The problem isn't just external. 
And so the solution can't just be something that is external, like a law written on stone. It must be a law that's written on the heart. What matters is not whether your flesh, your body has been circumcised. What matters is if your heart or your spirit has been circumcised. So Deuteronomy 10 God says, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. But that's just an external law. That in and of itself doesn't accomplish anything. In order for you to circumcise your heart, you must already have a circumcised heart in order to listen and heed the word of the Lord. And so we have the promise in Deuteronomy 36 that one day God would do this work. God doesn't merely command it, he provides it. Run, John, run, the law demands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. God is speaking of a day that is going to come when he will give us, he will grant us what he has commanded us. And so Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 36 says, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live but you might ask, why was the foreskin of the male sexual organ the thing that symbolized this reality? Why not choose something else? You know, why not get matching t-shirts? Why not make a certain haircut, like a mullet or something like that? Why not make one of these the sign of the new covenant? Why does it have to be the foreskin of the male sexual organ? Well, we talked about this quite a bit in Romans chapter 2 which is where uh, we were uh, about a month or so ago. And the reason is because the promise was to Abraham and his offspring. In fact, part of the promise to Abraham was that he would have offspring, but part of the, 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 the Abrahamic promise and the Abrahamic covenant uh, was this promise that God makes to Abraham and his offspring, or in some translations it says, and to his seed. If you're reading the the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it it would have the word there, sperma, and to his sperma, from which we get the word sperm, obviously. So the sign itself signifies this reality of offspring, of seed. The sign itself signifies the fulfillment of the promises. Last week we saw that the promises ultimately are fulfilled not by... Uh, plural offspring, not by offspring in general, but by one singular seed, one true offspring, one in particular, and that is Jesus. We've talked about this passage quite a bit as we've walked through these covenants. Galatians 3.16, this is such an important passage for understanding the way that the New Testament looks back upon the Old Testament and interprets the Old Testament. When Paul reads the promise to Abraham, this is what he says, Galatians 3.16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Now notice what he says here. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. When Paul reads the Old Testament, when he reads the promises that were made to Abraham and to his offspring, he doesn't see this larger ethnic body as being the heirs of those promises. He doesn't see offspring as being this collective corporate group of multiple people. He sees it as being one person in particular. For Paul, Israel is one person in particular. Jesus Christ is the true and better Israel. We talked about that last week. I encourage you to go back and listen to that audio for a defense 
of that statement. So as an Israelite, you would take your eight-day-old son, you'd circumcise his flesh, and as you did so, you would be reminded that there would one day be an offspring. One day there would be a seed, a son, in whom all of these promises would be fulfilled, including the promise to one day circumcise hearts. So that's circumcision. It points forward to the fulfillment of God's promises, which is part of the reason that Paul would say that circumcision now doesn't matter. In light of the coming of Christ, do it or don't do it. The sign has lost its significance in light of the fulfillment. Notice that Paul never says, don't circumcise, instead baptize, which we would expect. If there is just this one-to-one correspondence between the signs, if baptism is just a replacement of circumcision, that's what we would expect him to say. No, you don't have to uh, circumcise like the Judaizers are saying. Instead, you go baptize and you're fine. But he doesn't argue on the basis of that replacement because in his mind, it's not just a simple replacement. It's a fulfillment. They, they, they point to entirely different things altogether. Circumcision points to something that God is going to do, and that's true regardless of whether or not you believe it. Baptism points to something that God has already done only in the hearts of those who actually have faith. In Israel, you see, you're circumcised regardless of your faith. Your faith wasn't the point of the sign. The point of the sign was God's promise, which was true no matter if you believed or not. Whether you believed it or not, the sign was still true because the sign said the Messiah is coming and offspring is coming, which meant even if you were an unbeliever, God's promise remained true. But baptism is different at precisely this point. The sign signifies realities, things that aren't just true in general, but are true for you in particular. You see, being circumcised didn't imply anything about whether you individually actually loved and trusted God, but baptism does. We see that in Romans 6, 3 through 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. How does baptism signify death? By burial. That's the sign. One of the reasons that Baptists practice baptism by immersion. Another another reason is because that's what the word baptism even means. The Greek, Greek word baptizo means to immerse. Or dip, it was a word you would use if you wanted to dye a garment. In order to dye a garment, you didn't sprinkle something on it. You didn't pour a dye on it. You took that garment and you dipped it down into something, and it was raised, taking up the qualities. It's like if you're uh, uh, dyeing Easter eggs, you use that little dipper thing, which I'm going to start calling a baptizer now. So baptize really is not, it's not a translation of the Greek word. It's just a transliteration. It's taking the, uh, the Greek uh, sounds and just uh, moving them into English, taking all the Greek letters, finding the correspondence in English. So it's not actually telling you what the word means. It's just really telling you more about just what the word sounds like. It's like the word Christ from the Greek word Christos or the word Messiah from the Hebrew word Mashiach. The translation of those is one who is anointed. Transliteration is just Christ or Messiah. Likewise, baptize is not really what the passage says. The passage says to immerse. So when you baptize, 
when you see the word baptize, when, when the Bible says to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, it means to immerse them. So technically, very, very few traditions actually baptize infants because they just sprinkle or pour, and that isn't baptism. So in a sense, you could say that the problem in a Reformed tradition isn't just that they baptize infants, but they actually don't baptize anyone. But that's not the main point, so let's move on. You see here throughout the Scriptures, throughout the New Testament, that the sign of baptism is so closely connected to what it signifies, they're sometimes used interchangeably. You see this in particular in the book of Acts, which has kind of three different ways that you talk about the way uh, that uh, the people responded to the message that was preached. Sometimes it says that they believed. Sometimes it says that they repented. Sometimes it says that they were baptized. These are just three different things pointing to the same reality. Uh, Repentance is turning away from something. Faith is turning towards something. Baptism is the outward sign of that uh, inward change, that inward turning away, which is why in every single case of baptism that we see in Acts, there's some sort of reference to that person hearing the word, receiving the word, believing the word, repenting or something like that. So if the new covenant is better than the old, and it is, then we would expect for the sign to be better. But if baptism merely replaces circumcision, then it isn't really any better. But according to credo-baptist teaching, it is better. Circumcision says that you can be saved. Baptism says that you have been saved. But paedo-baptism doesn't necessarily say that. Now, the one passage that explicitly connects circumcision to baptism that's often used as a defense for the paedo-baptist view, basically the argument that paedo-baptism is just circumcision 2.0 is going to be Colossians 2, 11 through 14. And from a paedo-baptist perspective, this is kind of the nail in the metaphorical coffin that infants were circumcised, that baptism, according to this passage, is like circumcision, so infants should be baptized. So let's read Colossians 2, 11 through 14, which says, In him also you were circumcised, with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And I want you to notice three things about this. First, that baptism isn't actually said to be like circumcision of the flesh. Actually, the passage is saying the exact opposite. It's saying that baptism is analogous. It's related to circumcision made without hands, which is a way of speaking of something that God accomplishes. You see, man circumcises the flesh. That's a circumcision made by human hands, but only God can circumcise the heart with a circumcision made without hands. So if baptism is related to a circumcised heart, that only those whose hearts have been circumcised should receive the sign of baptism, which isn't true of unbelieving infants. Second, notice that this talks of those who have been baptized as those who have been buried with Christ in baptism and raised again to new life. That's not at all true of an unregenerate person, whether that person is an infant or not. Third, notice that there's an explicit mention here of faith and forgiveness as being connected to baptism. So with all of that in mind, 
This passage, when you actually look at it exegetically and you don't just look at it through a presumption or look at it superficially, it actually teaches the exact opposite of paedo-baptism. It connects baptism with a circumcised heart, with death to sin, with life to Christ, with faith and forgiveness. None of those are true of an unregenerate infant. In other words, by baptizing infants, we rob the sign of the significance. We dilute it, no pun intended. Far from teaching paedo-baptism, this passage actually presents a really, really strong defense of the idea that only those who are born again and truly trust Christ should be baptized. Now think back to Jeremiah 31 and the promise of the new covenant. Now can you see how baptism signifies those promises? When God says, I will put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts, I will be their God, they shall be my people, I will forgive their iniquity, I will remember their sin no more. All of those things are only true in regards to the regenerate person. They're only true in regards to the person who's been born again, the person who actually repents of their sin, the person who actually trusts in Jesus in light of the gospel. They're not true of unregenerate infants. So what baptism signifies is not true of unregenerate infants. Circumcision was true whether you believed it or not because it was primarily not about what God had done for you. It was primarily about what God was going to do in sending a son and in circumcising the hearts of his true people. So Israel was to apply it liberally to everyone regardless of whether they believed it or not. Whereas baptism signifies something entirely different. It signifies forgiveness, salvation, and a circumcised heart, which is only true of those who profess Christ. That's why we only baptize those who profess Christ and not infants who don't. So we could say, and we should say, that baptism and circumcision are similar, but baptism isn't simply circumcision 2.0. They're parallel, but they're not identical. And thus we can't simply interchange them, and the Bible doesn't either. I mentioned this earlier. I want to expound upon it a little bit. If it was a simple replacement, then when the early church was wrestling over the issue of circumcision, which was the major dividing point in the early church, the major controversy in the early church, when all of this is going on, the apostles would have just stood up and said, you know what? You don't have to be circumcised because baptism has now replaced circumcision. But that's not what they say. They could have ended the discussion, the debate right then and there, but they don't make that argument because it isn't true. They signify completely different things. So one hasn't simply replaced the other in a one-to-one relationship. Let's move on to the second sort of line of defense here, and that is community, that the nature of the covenant community would suggest that the sign of the covenant should be applied differently. Pedo-baptism teaches that Israel should be like the church. Just like Israel, the church should be a mixed community consisting of believers and their children. Both believers and their children are in some form of covenant with God, and thus believers should baptize their babies. Which makes sense. But the problem with that is that Jeremiah explicitly says that this is an area in which the church should not be like Israel. The nature of the covenant has changed, and thus the nature of the covenant community has changed. You see, Israel was a mixed community. There was an ethnic Israel, and within that larger circle was spiritual Israel. There was a remnant of the elect who shared not merely the blood of Abraham, but the belief of Abraham. But that's not the case in the new covenant community. 
of all the promises of the new covenant from Jeremiah 31, consider the following, where Jeremiah writes, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Everyone in the covenant community within the new covenant community will truly know Yahweh. That was not true of Israel. But Jeremiah has said this will be true in the new covenant community. That all who are members of the covenant community, there will be no ethnic larger body and then spiritual body. There will be no remnant within the church as there was within Israel. So my question is, how is that promise true from a paedo-baptist perspective in which unregenerate, unbelieving infants are members of the covenant community and remain members of the covenant community until they potentially come to faith? They might not come to faith, and they still remain members of the covenant community by virtue of the fact that their parents were believers? It doesn't make any sense at all. Jeremiah 31 says that one of the discontinuities between the Old and the New Covenants is that in the New Covenant community, all will be believers. But according to Pado baptist teaching, the church includes not only believers, but also unbelieving children of believers, which means that not all members of the church are saved or unregenerate or believers, which means the church is not different from Israel at precisely the point where Jeremiah has said that the church would be different from Israel. Now, if you're a paedo-baptist, you might respond by saying, but what about false professions? What about people who are baptized even though they aren't actually believers? I'm a good example of that. Not currently, mind you, but I was, quote-unquote, baptized at five, even though I honestly don't think I was converted until 23. So then I was re-baptized, quote-unquote, or in my mind, baptized for the first time in regards to what baptism actually means so Pado-Baptists look at my experience, for example, and say that Baptists are inconsistent. We say that only the regenerate should be baptized, and yet we sometimes baptize those who are unregenerate. Here's the response to that. The difference is intentionality. According to Presbyterian and other Pado-Baptist teaching, the church should be an intentionally mixed community of believers and unbelievers. Whereas in Baptist teaching, some might fall through the cracks but it's accidental. We do our best to assess and evaluate the professions that are made, which is why if you want to be a member here or if you want to be baptized here, you have to meet with a staff member or an elder for help discerning the validity of your profession of faith. There have even been a handful of times where we've delayed baptism because someone denied something essential about Christ or didn't really seem to understand the gospel or didn't really seem to understand or grieve their sin. So it's absolutely possible for an unbeliever to be a member of a church individually. They can slip through the cracks. We're not God. We don't know people's hearts. We don't know their ultimate condition. But theologically, it's impossible for an unbeliever to be a member of the capital C church, the actual body and bride of Jesus Christ, because that is composed of those who are forgiven and justified and redeemed and so forth. So here's the second problem with paedo-baptism. In the Old Covenant, you're born into covenant with God simply by virtue of your biology, your ethnicity, your genetics, your bloodline. You're a member of Israel, but you aren't born into the church. You're reborn into the church. So when you think about it, there's actually a bit more continuity here between the Old and the New. In a sense, 
We both apply the sign to infants. Whereas in the Mosaic covenant or in the Abrahamic covenant, we circumcise physical infants. In the new covenant, we baptize infants, but not physical infants, spiritual infants. When people are born again, a fancy word for uh, the fancy word is regenerated, then they are baptized. And there's a lot more that we could say about baptism and credo-baptism and paedo-baptism. We could look at various other passages, but in general, that's how the discontinuity between the covenants should lead to a discontinuity in the covenant community, which should lead then to a discontinuity in the application of the sign of the covenant, which leads us to credo-baptism rather than paedo-baptism. In a moment, we'll do some Q&A, but first I want to tackle three different lines of defense that are offered by paedo-baptists. If you're having a discussion with a paedo-baptist, in addition uh, to the argument on the basis of the continuity that exists between the Abrahamic and Mosaic, and uh, in particular the Abrahamic and the New Covenants, uh, they will also tend to kind of gravitate towards three arguments within the context of the New Testament. And so I want to argue uh, on the basis of those. And so the first thing they will say let me give you all three. The first one, the promise of Acts 2.39. The second one, the household baptism in Acts. The third one, the holiness of believers' kids. Let's look at the first one. They'll ask, what do you do with Acts 2.39? Acts 2.39 says, for the promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So if you're a paedo-baptist, you would claim that this establishes a similar pattern in the church as in Israel. It says the promises for you and for your children. So God somehow makes promises both to believers and to their children. I'm going to give two quick responses to this. First one is that the promise is not baptism. The promise is the Holy Spirit. I know that definitively because of the way that Luke uses the word promise throughout the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts. Starting at the end of Luke, Luke 24, 49, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power on high. That's an implicit reference to the Holy Spirit, to be clothed with power on high. That's the promise of the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit. We would see that at the beginning of the book of Acts, Acts 1, 4 through 5. And while staying with them, that's Jesus, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So those who should be baptized are those who have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's the promise that is given there. And then in the immediate context of Acts 2.39, You have Acts 2.33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So what is the promise? Or better yet, who is the promise? The promise of the Holy Spirit. The promise there is not baptism. It's not saying baptism is for you and for your children. It's saying the Holy Spirit is for all of these people. Second thing to notice about this that would lead us to not uh, infer what uh, Paedo-Baptists infer about this passage, is that whatever is true of your children would also be true of the, all who are far off. It says, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. 
It doesn't just mention your children, but also all who are far off. Whatever is true of your children is also true of all who are far off. And thus, whatever we do with our children on the basis of this text, we must do with all who are far off. If this is saying that we should baptize, <coughs> excuse me, our kids, whether they're unbeliever, whether they're believers or not, then this is also saying that we should baptize everyone we meet, whether they are believers or not. So go around with a huge dunk tank or a super soaker or some water balloons filled with holy water. But obviously, that's not what it's saying. So if we can't use this passage to support baptizing, unbelieving, unsuspecting adults, whether they want it or not, then we can't use this uh, passage to support baptizing infants who obviously don't want it. So what does it mean? Well, we just keep reading. There's a qualification that helps us to understand who the promise is for. It says that the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off. But does that mean every single person who's far off? Is this teaching universalism? That everyone will receive the promise of the Holy Spirit? Of course not. Just keep reading. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So should you baptize your kids on the basis of this passage? Yes. If God has called them to himself. And how would you know on the basis of the rest of the testimony of the book of Acts? By their faith and repentance. So this passage has nothing to do with infant baptism. Rather, it's saying that the gift of forgiveness and the promise of the Spirit is available to any and all whom the Lord will call to himself. And if he does, then you should be baptized. The second line of defense that's often argued uh, by Paedobaptists is uh, household baptism. If households were baptized, and if those households included infants, then we have biblical evidence of paedobaptism. That makes sense again, but there's good reason to reject the argument. First, the entire thing is founded upon a hypothetical, the presumed presence of infants. We're building the whole argument on the strength of a couple of ifs. If references to households being baptized mean that every single member of the house was baptized. Second, if that household even had infants in it in the first place. The text doesn't necessitate such a reading. Second, the texts and questions have clues which at least suggest that all who are baptized had been converted. There's four examples of household baptism. That's it. There's four examples of household baptism uh, in the book of Acts to look at. In Acts 10 of Cornelius, Acts 10, 1 through 2, at at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. So when we get to the household being baptized, bear in mind that it is already said that he feared God with his household. His household also is described as fearing God. Acts 10, 47, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit, just as we have. So when we get to the household being baptized, you have the fact that those who are baptized are those who have received the Holy Spirit. Acts 11, when uh, Paul is la- uh, Peter is later recounting this, it says, uh, he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So those, uh, again, if the household is baptized, what's also described as the household is being saved. So unless we're going uh, to teach that God saves people regardless of whether or not they believe, then you have to would say that those who are baptized are those who believe. If God saves the entire household and if the whole entire household is baptized, 
Then the whole, uh, the entire household also were believers. The next example is from Acts 16. Doesn't have a whole lot of information. Just says that Lydia is a seller of purple fabric. She has her heart opened and she believes and is baptized along with her household. We really don't have any information beyond that in terms of the description of the household. It doesn't necessarily say uh, that uh, uh, who all was in that household. It doesn't necessarily say whether they believed or not, anything like that. Although I do find it strange, thinking about this from a cultural perspective, uh, that uh, if Lydia is uh, within this Jewish or Roman context, both of those would have been uh, much more patriarchal societies. Uh, So typically what you would not have expected is if the uh, matriarch of the family uh, was converted to a religion, you wouldn't expect the entire household to convert simply on the basis of the fact that she was. In other words, you wouldn't expect the entire household to be baptized simply by virtue of the fact that uh, the mother was saved. You would expect that perhaps if the father was saved, but not if the mother. Now, it's possible that she was a widow. We don't have that information, but at the very least, this seems to be culturally uh, strange. The next account also occurs in Acts 16. It's the account of a jailer in, uh, starting in uh, verse 31 and then moving on to 34. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke of the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And so notice it begins. It says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Now that's obviously not saying that if the jailer believed, that the entire household would believe. No, it's saying that if you believe, you will be saved. And the same thing is true for your household. If they believe, they will be saved. So the implication is that the entire household believed and thus the entire household was baptized and the whole household was saved. We see further evidence of that at the very end when it says the word is spoken to his entire household in verse 32 and his entire household rejoiced together in verse 34. The last reference to a household baptism dimension, although it's not in the book of Acts, there's one last household baptism that's mentioned in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 1.16, where Paul states that he had baptized the household of Stephanus. That's interesting. If you were to flip all the way to the back, that's the beginning of 1 Corinthians, if you flip all the way to the back of 1 Corinthians, chapter 16, verse 15, it states... Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. So when we see that the household of Stephanus is baptized, you see their explicit evidence that they are described as converts who have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. So do household baptisms teach infant baptism? Certainly not necessarily so. At the very best, there's an argument from silence. And at the very least, there is compelling biblical evidence to suggest that all who are baptized were believers. One last thing, and then we'll summarize and we'll be done. The last thing is that uh, of uh, the holiness of believers' kids. Some take a passage in 1 Corinthians as implying that God maintains a covenant with a believer and his or her family and thus implies infant baptism. The passage 
that they would look at is 1 Corinthians 7, 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So if their children are holy, therefore you should baptize them is the logic there. But notice, whatever is true of your kids is also true of your spouse. It's just said an unbelieving spouse is also made holy because of a believing spouse. Notice that an unbelieving husband or wife is considered holy in this passage the same way that a child is considered holiness. So why would the holiness of the kids make them candidates for baptism while the holiness of the spouse would not? That seems inconsistent. So what does it mean? What does it mean here if it doesn't mean infant baptism? I don't know fully. I encourage you to ask Zach during Q&A. But I know that it doesn't imply infant baptism. Here's my best explanation, that any word gets its meaning from the context. A word doesn't just have one meaning, but a range of meanings that's limited by usage. We talked about that last week. If I ask you to bring my bat to the softball game and you show up with a blood-sucking flying mammal, I'm not happy. Context should have led you to conclude that's not the type of bat I meant. Likewise, holy has a range of meanings in one sense, In some contexts, it's only true of believers, but its basic range of meaning refers to some sort of setting apart or consecration or dedication. The passage certainly isn't teaching that an unbelieving child or spouse is saved by their unbelieving spouse. 1 Peter 3 is going to explicitly say that. Uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 7 later on here is going to say that. How do you know whether or not you will save your unbelieving Spouse, So it's certainly not saying that, but they are set apart. They are holy in the sense of receiving prayer, exposure to the gospel, and Christian witness. In addition, there are other benefits to having a godly spouse or parents and that they mirror gospel virtues, which means there will be love and joy and peace, which is also a form of being set apart or dedicated or consecrated. For example, if you have a Christian parent, the assumption is that that parent won't be exposing you to crack or to meth or filthy talk, or pornography, or whatever, but instead will be modeling forgiveness, and mercy, and self-control. So you're also set apart in that sense. So are there certain benefits to having a Christian spouse or parent? Definitely. But does that mean in any sense that we should take this as a defense of infant baptism? Definitely not. You're stretching the text well beyond the context to suggest that the fact that children are somehow holy to then suggesting that this means that they're in covenant with God and then therefore concluding that they should be baptized. Really, the question isn't even whether kids are in a covenant somehow with God. That's really not the question that we should even be asking as it relates to infant baptism, whether or not your kids are in covenant with God somehow. Rather, the question as it relates to paedobaptism versus credobaptism is whether that is even what baptism signifies in the first place. Does baptism signify some sort of generic covenant that God makes with his people? Or does it signify the particular aspects of a covenant that are forgiveness, reconciliation, redemption, a circumcised heart, faith, repentance, all of these sorts of things? I think when we look at it from a New Testament perspective, that the new covenantal sign signifies death and burial and faith and repentance rather than just belonging to a community of those for whom those things are true and those for whom those things are not true. 
So let me summarize what we've kind of talked about today, and then I want to open it up for Q&A. Four points to make here. First point, that the Old Covenant community was primarily entered into physically by birth, whereas the New Covenant is entered into spiritually by rebirth or being born again. Whereas Protestant paedobaptism prescribes baptism for those in physical infancy, credo-baptism or believer's baptism insists upon the baptism of those in spiritual infancy. Having been born again through the Holy Spirit, the Old Covenant was based on a physical or a biological principle, whereas the New Covenant is based upon a spiritual relationship. Second, the Old Covenant community was a mixed community composed of both believers and unbelievers. But the New Covenant community is technically a congregation of regenerate believers. That's one of the distinctives, according to Jeremiah 31, that the church is going to be unlike Israel at this exact place. No longer will it be a mixed community of believers and unbelievers, such that some would have to say, come and know Yahweh, because all will know him within the New Covenant community. Third, though there is a great degree of continuity between the covenants, there is also substantial discontinuity. The old covenants consisted of shadows which pointed to the substance fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, we need to be careful about directly applying elements of the old covenants without recognizing the essential distinctions. When the new covenant was prophesied, part of the distinction or discontinuity itself concerned the nature of the covenants and the nature of the covenant community, and thus those differences should be symbolized in the sign of the covenant. By merely practicing a new sign in the same way, we don't show forth what is new and unique and glorious and better about the new covenant. So lastly, here's the clearest way that I know to simplify this issue. In Israel, you would circumcise all who were related to Abraham. In Israel, you would circumcise all who are related to to Abraham. In the church, you baptize all all who are related to Abraham. In the church, you baptize all who are related to Abraham. But within the pages of the New Testament, we find that those who are related to Abraham are not related by blood, but by belief. Not ethnicity, but election. They're not a physical family, but a spiritual family of the same faith of Abraham. So the question is really not one of age, but of status. The question isn't if this person is your child and thus should be baptized, but if this person is a child of Abraham and thus a child of God and should therefore be baptized. Let's open it up for Q&A and then we'll pray and be dismissed.